At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. The following chapter is taken from the book Thoughts on Public Prayer by Samuel Miller, professor in the Theological Seminary at Princeton, New Jersey, published in the year 1849 by the Presbyterian Board of Publication. This chapter is called Frequent Faults of Public Prayer in all the exercises of the pulpit. Mannerism is apt on all sides to creep in, that is, Certain favorite thoughts, illustrations, or modes of expression are apt to obtrude themselves more frequently than occasion demands or than good taste allows. Such thoughts or expressions may become, if often repeated, highly offensive to pious and cultivated worshipers. This is more especially the case if they are repugnant to either good grammar or good sense. These are of various kinds and have, of course, very different degrees of offensiveness. It is the province of good sense and of good taste to avoid them, and it is surely incumbent upon all who are called to officiate in the service in question to be unceasingly on the watch to guard against everything adapted to inflict pain or to interfere with the edification of a single mind. It is far from being my aim to encourage that spirit of excessive refinement, that fastidious intolerance of minor blemishes in the devotions of the sanctuary which is sometimes manifested by those who care much more about the taste of the external ceremonies than about the life and power of religion. I would earnestly deprecate the indulgence of such a spirit in the house of God. It ought to be as much as possible banished from our public assemblies. Still, while we caution serious minds against being too much revolted even by real blemishes in the mode of conducting public devotion, we ought not to hide from ourselves that they are blemishes, which it is far better to avoid than to defend. The faults which I have in view are as various as they are multiplied. I shall merely specify a few. Others will readily occur to enlightened and vigilant observers. Number one, in the first place, a very common fault is the overfrequent recurrence of favorite words and set forms of expression, however unexceptionable in themselves. Among these are the constant repetition in every sentence or two of the names and titles of God, the perpetual recurrence of the modes of expression, O oh God, Great God, our Heavenly Father, Holy Father, we pray thee, we beseech thee, we entreat thee to grant, and so on, or the excessive use of the interjection, O, oh, prefixed to almost every sentence, with many these appear to be mere expletives, with others they seem to furnish a kind of resting place for the mind, to afford an opportunity for reflecting on what is to follow, and hence they have been called the setting poles of preaching and prayer. In all they fill up a space which might be better occupied by coming directly to the object itself prayed for. Besides, 
This incessant repetition of particular words or phrases renders them cheap, and after a time not merely superfluous, but disgusting, a feeling which ought to be as much as possible banished from every devotional exercise. Nay, there is something in this manner more serious still. If the constant repetition of the name of the Most High, even in prayer, be not taken the name of the Lord our God in vain, it certainly approaches very near to that sin. We are sometimes called to join in prayers in which that holy name occurs in almost every sentence from the beginning to the end. Number two. Hesitation and apparent embarrassment in utterance is another fault of very frequent occurrence and a real blemish in the leader in public devotion. It's all prayer is to be regarded as the utterance of the heart. So the suppliant ought to be supposed to be at no loss, to have no hesitation about the blessing which he solicits. When therefore he pauses, stumbles, recalls, or goes back to correct, he unavoidably gives pain to every fellow worshiper, and always leaves the impression of a mind less intent, a heart less fervently engaged in a not to be. All stammering then, all pauses, all recalling or exchanging words, all want of proper fluency, in short, everything adapted to impair for a moment the confidence of fellow worshippers and the ability of him who leads to get on with entire ease, comfort, and success, ought to be deemed real false and to be as much as possible avoided. Number three, all ungrammatical expressions in prayer. All expressions foreign from English idiom and bordering on the style of cant and whining, low and colloquial phrases, and so on, ought of course to be regarded as blemishes and to be carefully avoided. These are by no means so uncommon as might be supposed. Even educated men by inadvertence, by strange habit, by various unaccountable means are betrayed into faults of this kind and are sometimes found to adhere to them with a wonderful obstinacy. Of these there will be an attempt to give a small specimen only. It is no uncommon thing to hear ministers, who in other respects are entitled to the character of correct speakers, say, Grant to give us the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Grant to impart to us the consolations of thy grace. Come down in our midst. Make one in our midst. Lay us out for thyself. We commit us to thee. We resign us into thy hands. Solemnize our minds. These and many similar expressions are among the minor instances which too often occur of forgetfulness of English idiom and of strict grammatical rules. The more gross offenses against both are passed over here. It's too revolting to be recited and is not to be corrected by cursory hints but by a return to radical instruction. True indeed, where there is much of the spirit of prayer, much of that faith and love and elevated devotion which belong to the fervent effectual prayer of the righteous man, we ought not to indulge as before remarked in too much fastidiousness in regard to language. Yet while it is admitted that the formality of carefully adjusted rhetoric ought to have no place in either secret or social prayer, while the enticing words of man's wisdom ought not to be sought in the cry of sinners for pardoning mercy and sanctifying grace. Still, 
He who undertakes to be the leader and helper of others in their devotions ought to remember that he is a debtor to the wise as well as the unwise, to the learned as well as the illiterate, that there are numbers in every congregation who, though they have no taste for piety, have some small claim to literary culture, and therefore that it is incumbent on him to be qualified to perform his work in such a manner it shall not be revolting to the most cultivated of those whose mouth he is at the throne of grace. And this, as well as in every other part of spiritual service, it is important to find out acceptable words. It is evident from a passage in a former chapter that in the days of the learned and pious Augustine, there were some who in their public prayers fell into barbarisms and solecisms in regard to which the venerable father cautions those to whom he wrote against being offended at such expressions, because God does not regard the language employed so much as the state of the heart. And he at the same time exhorts those who fell into these faults to employ the appropriate means which he prescribes for avoiding them in the future. Number four, the want of regularity and order is a fault which frequently and greatly impairs the acceptable and edifying character of public prayers. All public prayer, which bears a comprehensive character which belongs to that exercise, is made up of various departments, such as adoration, confession, thanksgiving, petition, and intercession. A public prayer which should be entirely destitute of any one of these departments would be deemed essentially defective, and a prayer in which these several departments should all be so mixed up together throughout the whole is that they should all go on together in a state of confused mixture. From the beginning to the end, would doubtless be considered as very ill-judged and untasteful in its structure, nay, is adapted essentially to interfere with the edification of intelligent worshippers. Not that the same order should always be maintained. This would be a serious fault of an opposite kind. It is the absence of all order that is here meant to be censored and represented as a fault. Number five, descending too much minuteness of detail in particular departments of prayer is another fault of unhappy influence in this part of the public service. As a well-conducted public prayer ought to consist of many parts, so it is evident that the undue protraction of any one or more of these parts must of necessity lead either to inordinate length in the whole exercise or to the omission of other parts equally important. Not only so, but this minuteness of detail may be carried so far as to become revolting in itself to the mind of every intelligent worshipper. It is proper, no doubt, to return thanks to God for the fruits of the earth, especially on days set apart for public thanksgiving. But suppose a leader in such a service, instead of contenting himself with grateful general acknowledgments for the products of the soil and a favorable and abundant harvest, furnishing food for man and beast, should think himself called upon to descend to such minuteness of detail as to specify by name all the various kinds of grain and all the productions of the garden, the field and the meadow, specifying those which were deemed of most importance and which had been yielded in the greatest abundance, would he be deemed wise and judicious? Would it not be much better to contempt himself with acknowledging the goodness of God and sending a fruitful season, and an abundant harvest providing abundance of food for all who stood in need of it? 
In like manner, if a neighborhood had been visited with severe and mortal sickness of various kinds, it surely would not be proper in a prayer in which it was intended to acknowledge the righteous judgment of God in the case, and to humble ourselves under his mighty hand to recount by name all the forms of disease which had proved distressing or fatal, referring to the various proportions in which they had respectively prevailed. It would be quite enough to speak in general of prevailing sickness and mortality, to acknowledge the hand of God in the dispensation, to pray for the sanctified use of all of his dealings, and to implore his sustaining and consoling grace for all those families which he had been pleased to bereave. I have sometimes known the dignified and solemn nature of the exercise greatly impaired by descending to particulars to a degree bordering on the ludicrous, and by no means favorable to pure and elevated devotion. I once knew a minister who had making a prayer at the funeral of an aged patriarch, who left a large family of children, went over by name all the sons and daughters of the family, alluding graphically to the character and situation of each, some being quite unfavorable. I also knew another who, during our Revolutionary War, and alluding in a public prayer to a sanguinary battle which had been recently fought, gave a detailed account of the killed and wounded on both sides in all the leading circumstances of the conflict. Number six. Closely connected with his fault in public prayer is another of which we often hear serious complaint. It is that of excessive length. This is so common and so crying a fault that it ought to be mentioned with emphasis and guarded against with special care. The state of the mind in right prayer is one of the most elevated and interesting in which it can be placed. Of course, such is a weakness of our faculties, and their tendency to flag that an exercise of this fervent and exalted character ought not long to be continued. The leader himself cannot always keep up the full tide of spiritual feeling for any length of time together, and even if he could, those who unite with him in worship may not be always equally successful. Hence, what is more common, in looking over our religious assemblies in time of prayer, than to see one half of the worshippers after a short time grow weary of the standing posture and sitting down for relief. This may indeed be done and often is done without reason and very improperly, but it is unhappy to furnish even a pretext for it. An ordinary prayer before a sermon ought not to exceed twelve or at most fifteen minutes in length. All protraction of the exercise beyond that length does not help but rather hinders devotion. Some allowance indeed as to this point ought to be made for days of special prayer, either of thanksgiving or of humiliation and fasting. For as prayer ought to form a larger element than common in the exercises of such days, so of course more time for it ought to be allowed, so that on such occasions several minutes more may with propriety be added to the devotional parts of the service. But after all allowance for extra cases, the excessive length of public prayer still remains a crying grievance, and it appears impossible in some cases to make the offenders sensible of their fault. It is not meant by this that the leader in public prayer should pray by the clock, but that he should by habit which any thinking observant man may easily form earn a guard against that inconsiderate tediousness which soon banishes all devotion. The celebrated George Whitfield after being greatly fatigued with preaching one evening, 
requested the father of the family in whose house he lodged to conduct a domestic worship before retiring to rest. The pious gentleman protracted his family prayer so inordinately that Mr. Whitfield, in the midst of it, rose from his knees, sat in his chair and groaned audibly. And when it was ended, he took his friends by the hand and said with strong feeling, Brother, how can you allow yourself to indulge such tediousness in your domestic devotions? You prayed me into a delightful frame of mind, and you prayed me completely out of it again. Number seven, an abundant use of highly figurative language is another blemish in public prayer, of which we sometimes find examples. All studied refinement of language, all artificial structure of sentences, all affectation of the beauties of rhetoric are out of place in their exercise of right prayer. Both evangelical solemnity and good taste equally forbid them. Here, many offend. Even the eloquent and evangelical William J. of Bath in England in his published volume of prayers has not wholly avoided this fault. His devotional language in too many cases lacks the unaffected simplicity which ought to characterize it. It has too little of the language of scripture. It is artificial rhetorical, elaborate, abounding unduly in our innate and studied forms of speech, in point antithesis and other rhetorical figures. This is often beautiful. Some greatly admire it and call it an eloquent prayer, but for the fervent utterance of the heart is always simple. Here labored rhetorical language is out of taste and out of place. They are surely in great error, then, who seem to aim continually to close their petitions in public in high-sounding language with elaborate ingenuity, who are constantly recurring to language drawn from the thunder, the earthquake, the ocean, the splendor of the solar beams, the mighty flood, the lofty mountain, and so on. I once knew an eloquent and eminently popular preacher who seemed to aim at concentrating in his prayers all the bold, high-sounding, sublime thoughts and figures which he could collect from the natural and moral worlds, so that he seemed to be ever upon a kind of descriptive stilts, and exerted himself to exhibit on every subject this rhetorical grandeur. He succeeded in gaining the admiration of multitudes, but was not equally acceptable to the more simple-hearted and devout of those to whom he ministered. I've even known some preachers, not infrequently in public prayer, to quote lines of poetry in a few cases, the greater part of a striking beautiful stanza. To be very fond of making such quotations and sermons is not in the best taste, but to do it in prayer is certainly a much graver offense against the dictates of sound judgment. Number 8. It is a serious fault in public prayer to introduce allusions to party politics, and especially to indulge in personalities. As a minister of the gospel who leads in public prayer is, as it were, the mouth of hundreds, and sometimes of thousands, in addressing the throne of grace, he ought not, if he can consistently with duty avoid it, to introduce this exercise anything that has a tendency to agitate and to produce secular resentment or unnecessary offense of any kind in the minds of any portion of the worshippers. In the house of God, persons of all political opinion may meet harmoniously and affectionately meet, provided they all agree and acknowledge the same Savior, and glorying in the same hope of divine mercy. They may differ endlessly in their political creeds and wishes, and on a thousand other subjects. 
and yet assemble in the same temple and gather round the same altar with fraternal affection, provided there of one heart and of one way in regard to the great system of salvation through the redemption that is in Christ. Why, then, should the feelings of brethren in Christ be invaded in their approaches to the throne of grace by unnecessary allusions to points in which the strongest worldly feelings are painfully embarked? It is impolitic. It is cruel. It often presents a most serious obstacle to the success of the gospel. It has a thousand times produced distraction and division in churches before united. It constrained many to separate themselves from their appropriate places of worship and from all the means of grace. Having been myself betrayed in early life on various occasions into a course of conduct in relation to this manner, which is afterwards regretted, I resolved more than thirty years ago never to allow myself either in public prayer or preaching to utter a syllable in periods of great political excitement and party strife that would enable any human being so much as to conjecture to which side in the political conflict I learned. This has been my aim, and this is my judgment still in this course unless in very extraordinary cases which must furnish a law for themselves. I would earnestly recommend to every minister of the gospel the more those who minister in holy things are abstracted from political conflicts, even in common conversation and much more in their public work, the better. They have infinitely more important work to do than to lend their agency to the unhallowed conflicts of political partisans. Let the dead bury their dead. No less unsuitable and unhappy is the influence of all personalities in public prayer. All praying at people. All recognition of the private scandal of the weak and the devotions of the house of God. All allusions to the private injuries or griefs which he who officiates has recently received. All singling out conspicuous individuals in the neighborhood and holding them up to public view in our petitions, whether for accommodation or censor. Everything of this kind is improper in its nature and mischievous in its influence, adapted to excite various unhallowed feelings in the house of God and to drive individuals from the sanctuary. On the subject, I would say that even when prayers are requested for the family, or in any respect for the benefit of persons who are supposed to be present in the assembly, we may go too much into detail, too far in holding them up personally to view, or indulging in language complementary to their standing or importance in society. In regard to points of this sort, it is always better to err on the side of reserve and brevity than the reverse. Number nine, all expressions of the amatory class ought to be sedulously avoided in the public devotions of the house of God. Those who lead in prayer are sometimes unhappily betrayed into language of this kind. We sometimes through not very frequently hear those who are fervent and importunate in prayer use such expressions as, Dear Jesus, Sweet Jesus, Lovely Savior, and various other terms of a similar class. All such language, though flowing from earnestness and dictated by the best of motives, is unhappy and produces on the minds of the judicious painful impressions. Number 10. The practice of indulging wit, humor, or sarcasm in public prayer is highly objectionable and ought never to be allowed. This, though not often, is sometimes witnessed, and perhaps we may say, especially by men of powerful minds and strong feelings, 
and who are accustomed on that account to feel that they may take liberties in their public ministrations. A small specimen of what is intended here will be sufficient. It being once intimated to a popular clergyman who was strongly opposed to the administration of President Thomas Jefferson, that his omitting to pray for the president in his public devotions had been remarked with regret. He came out on the following Sabbath in his prayer with a reference to the subject, in something like the following brief and pointed style. Lord, look with your favor upon our public rulers. Bless the President of the United States. Give him wisdom to discharge his important duties aright, for thou knowest he exceedingly needs it." In quote. Another popular preacher, eminently a man of wit, warmly opposed to the administration of the then president on a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer to which the United States had been called by the president's proclamation, expressed himself in public prayer as follows, Almighty God, who sittest as governor among the nations and who rulest over all, we have been called by our chief magistrate to humble ourselves before thee and ask for thy gracious interposition on our behalf. But thou knowest he has not called us to this duty, until by his unwise administration he had brought us into a condition which renders aid from above peculiarly desirable and necessary. For vain is the help of man, end quote. One more example shall suffice. An excellent clergyman of powerful mind and strong feelings having been deeply impressed by a recent instance of parsimony on the part of a church toward her pastor, in consequence of which his health and comfort had been seriously impaired, prayed at a church meeting in the following strain, Almighty King of Zion, guard and sustain thine own cause, protect and strengthen thy ministering servants, have mercy upon such of thy professing people as have no compassion on laborers in the gospel field, and who seem to be desirous of making the experiment, whether they could most speedily destroy their lives by overworking, or by starving them, quote. It is earnestly to be hoped that such examples will not be considered as proper for imitation. If they be not profane in their spirit, they are certainly much more adapted to promote profane than devout feelings. I should expect a general smile to pervade an assembly on the utterance of such petitions. There are those who call praying in a style fidelity but it is often the product of a very different spirit and will be generally avoided by those who wish to utter the truth with a meekness of wisdom. If any minister of the gospel has wit or sarcasm or anything of like character on his mind, of which he wishes to be delivered, as a stroke at any person or cause, it is most earnestly to be desired that he will seek some other channel for giving it vent in the public prayers of the sanctuary. Number 11. The excellence of a public prayer may be marred by introducing into it a large portion of didactic statement in either in the language of scripture and any other language laying down formal exhibitions of Christian doctrine. It will be seen in the next chapter that the devout recognition of fundamental doctrine in prayer is an excellence, and ought ever to make a part of it. But this ought always to be presented in a devotional form and ought never to wear the aspect of a theological lecture addressed to him who sits on the throne of grace. This fault, however, will be sufficiently guarded against in a future chapter. In the meantime, it should be recognized as a real fault, and care taken to avoid every approach to it that may be adapted to give pain to an intelligent worshiper. Number 12. 
Another fault nearly allied to this is worthy of notice. I've known a few persons who were not only in the habit of introducing into their public prayers abundant didactic statement of doctrine, but who also seem studious of introducing with much point those doctrines which are most offensive to the carnal heart, and which seldom fail to be revolting to our impenitent hearers. We Presbyterians profess to preach a system of doctrine, some of the parts of which, especially those which recognize the absolute sovereignty of God and the dispensation of His grace, all unsanctified men, of course, hate, in which, whenever they are announced, excite uncomfortable feelings and opposition among the great mass of mankind. Still, we are bound to preach these doctrines, whether men will hear or whether they will forbear. These doctrines were preached by the inspired apostles. They were offensive to a great majority of those to whom they were delivered, and it is so to the present hour. Yet, we are not to preach them continually, and to the exclusion of everything else, but as the apostles did, in proper order, in proper connection, and in wise measure, to be fond of introducing them in prayer argues a mind not cast in the apostolic mold and inordinately set on partial views of truth. 13. Too great familiarity of language in addressing the High and Holy One is also revolting to pious minds and ought to be sacredly avoided. There are those who, on the principle of indulging in filial confidence, and a strong faith, address God as they would speak to an equal, claiming the fulfillment of his promise, insisting on the bestowment of what they wish, and in short employing without scruple the language of earthly and carnal urgency. This is not in accordance with that deep humility, that profound reverence and solemn awe with which suppliants conscious of unworthiness ought ever to approach the infinite majesty of heaven and earth. The filial but humble confidence of a dutiful child is one thing. The presumptuous familiarity of one who thinks much more of his own wishes and will than of his deep unworthiness as a sinner and of the infinite holiness and majesty of the being to whom his prayers addressed is quite another. There is such a thing as appearing at home before the mercy seat and pleading with God with all the freedom and confidence of an affectionate child. And there is also such a thing as under the guise of prayer speaking unadvisedly with our lips, and forgetting that even the heavens are not clean in the sight of him who sits on the throne of grace. 14. Further, there is such a thing as expressing unseasonably, and also as carrying to an extreme the professions of humility, the former sometimes exemplified by ministers of the gospel in praying for themselves in the public assembly. Often have I heard ministers and lead in the public devotions of the sanctuary pray for divine assistance in preaching the word. This is very proper, and may be so expressed as to be at once delicate, acceptable, and edifying. But suppose a petition on the subject to be expressed in some such manner as this, which I have actually and repeatedly heard. Lord, assist thy servant, one of the most weak and unworthy of men, a very child in spiritual things, and attempting to open and apply the scriptures and so on, and again, help him, in all his weakness and ignorance, rightly to divide the word of truth and to give to each a portion in due season, end quote. Such language might be altogether unexceptionable in secret prayer, in which if the humble petitioner really and honestly made this estimate of himself, he might with great propriety express it before the Lord. But when he addresses God as the mouth of hundreds of worshippers, 
There is surely no propriety in putting into the mouths of all of his fellow suppliants language concerning himself which he would consider as indelicate and offensive if employed by one of them in praying for him. Suppose he should hear one of his elders or deacons pray for him in a similar language and say, Lord, help our minister in preaching for us today. Thou knowest that he is one of the weakest and most unworthy of men. Thou knowest he is but a child in spiritual things and needs thy help in the discharge of every duty. Would he consider this as becoming language in the mouth of another concerning himself? How then can he reconcile it with propriety to put language into the mouths of hundreds concerning his own character, which he would consider as unsuitable if uttered by any one of them? Whatever then any man might be willing to say of himself in his closet, let him never utter anything in prayer in the pulpit respecting himself which he would not be willing that any and every person should say of him in similar circumstances. In regard to expressions of extreme humility in public prayer, we may also find examples. It is not common indeed, nor is it easy, to take a lower place before the mercy seat than our demerit as sinners justifies. And yet I think language on this subject has sometimes been employed which a sound judgment and a correct taste ought to have been forbidden. To exemplify my meaning, a warm-hearted and eminently pious minister of our church on the occasion of a meeting of one of our synods, when the Lord's Supper was dispensed, and it was customary in that ordinance to employ a number of successive tables, the first table being filled entirely with ministers. In the course of the prayer, setting apart the elements, he expressed himself thus, O Lord, thou knowest we are most unworthy. Thou knowest there was never gathered round a sacramental table a more polluted, unworthy set of sinners than those who are now seated before thee, end quote. The good man undoubtedly meant to recognize the idea that to whomsoever much was given, of them should much be required, and that the sense of ministers in opposition to their light and their vows and obligations were to be regarded as inferring more guilt than those of other men. But when he ventured to say in prayer that no band of communicants was ever more corrupt and foul than those which surrounded that table, the probability is that he went beyond the truth and with a good meaning was chargeable with indulging in pious, certainly an unseasonable extravagance. 15. Again, everything approaching to flattery is a serious fault in public prayer, and ought to be carefully avoided. Flattery in any man and on any occasion is criminal. In the pulpit, it is eminently so. But to convey anything like flattery in prayer is undoubtedly liable to still heavier censor. Yet something nearly resembling this not unfrequently occurs in the public devotions of the sanctuary. I refer to the language often employed in prayer after a brother in the ministry has preached or performed some other equivalent service. That prayer is often employed as a vehicle of strong commendation, not to say flattery, of the preceding preacher. It is by no means uncommon in this part of the public service for him who performs it to express himself in such language as the following. We thank thee, O Lord, for the interesting, the solemn and the truly scriptural discourse to which we have just listened. Or, we pray that the richly instructive, powerful and excellent discourse which thy servant has just given us may sink down into our heart. And on some rare occasion, thanks, a return that such a burning and shining light has been raised up, and a petition offered, that he may shine with increasing luster as he advances in years 
and at his departure, like the setting sun, may be serene and full of glory. In short, with many preachers, the closing prayer in all such cases is considered as furnishing a kind of theological thermometer by which we may graduate the warmth or the coldness of the approbation felt for the sermon which is just closed. This ill-judged and very exceptionable practice has become with many preachers so common that if one should admit to convey in some form the usual compliment, he is by some considered as wanting in civility and as manifesting a want of respect to the preacher. And although persons of sound judgment and good taste generally avoid this impropriety, yet as might be expected, the more injudicious and indiscreet are more apt to launch out in language of warm eulogy, and through this devotional medium to pay compliments altogether unmerited and if ever so much merited, altogether unseasonable. It would indeed be over-fastidious to forbid in closing prayer any reference to a preceding preacher, to pray that the word as delivered by him may be accompanied with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, that it may prove like good seed sown in good ground and bring forth abundant fruit to the glory of God, and that the preacher may be graciously rewarded for his labor of love and may see the work of the Lord prospering under his ministrations, may undoubtedly be allowed without offense, nay, without impropriety, but nothing that savors of compliment direct or indirect, either to the talents or the piety of the preachers in any ordinary case allowable, and certainly it is in all cases safest and best to err on the side of reserve and abstinence and of excess. There is a tradition that the following circumstances once occurred in the life of the elder President Jonathan Edwards. He had engaged to preach on a certain Sabbath for a neighboring pastor. When the day arrived, the pastor went to his pulpit at the appointed time, but he did not find Mr. Edwards there. He waited as long as he thought proper, and Mr. Edwards still not appearing, he began the service. In the course of the prayer, which usually precedes the sermon, Mr. Edwards, who had been retarded by an unexpected occurrence, entered the church, and being remarkably gentle and quiet in all of his movements, he came into the house made his way to the pulpit and placed himself by the side of the pastor without being observed. The pastor, in his prayer, taken for granted Mr. Edwards was still absent, had allowed himself to express regret that he had failed to come and that the congregation was to be disappointed. He also launched out in expressions of profound respect for the talents, learning, and piety of Mr. Edwards, thanking God that he had raised up so eminent an instrument for doing good and that he had been enabled to accomplish so much by his learned and able works, and praying that his important life might be spared, and his usefulness extended to the remotest parts of the land. At the close of his prayer, to his astonishment, he found Mr. Edwards standing by his side and ready to perform the service which had been expected of him. With some little embarrassment, he said, Sir, I did not know that you were present. If I had known it, I should not have prayed as I did but feeling as if I might do good to throw into the scale something to balance his compliments, he added. But after all, they do say that your wife has more piety than you, in quote. Number 16, the want of appropriateness, is another fault often chargeable on public prayer. In some rare cases, we find ministers who excel in this branch of the worship of the sanctuary, whose topics and language are all dictated by the occasion on which they officiate. From beginning to end, they are appropriate. The intelligent fellow worshiper recognizes a fitness and adaptedness in every petition and in every sentence. Without any parent study or effort, 
Everything seems to be in keeping with the occasion which has brought them together in the scene before them. This is a great excellence and never fails to make a happy impression on pious and enlightened worshippers. But with how many who officiate in public prayer is it far otherwise? If they are called to conduct this exercise on the first day of the year, on a day of humiliation and fasting, or at thanksgiving, at the visitation of a Sabbath school, at the opening of a judicatory of the church, at the dispensation of a sacrament, or at the ordination of a minister, the greater part of the petitions they utter would be equally applicable to any other service or occasion. Perhaps an eighth or a tenth part only of what they utter can be considered as applicable to the occasion before them, or is entirely seasonable. I once knew a member of one of our presbyteries who, when called upon to make the ordaining prayer at the solemnity of setting apart a minister to the sacred office, went back to the beginning of time, traced the progress of civil and ecclesiastical society, alluded to the various plans of electing and ordaining the officers of the church all along down through the patriarchal and ceremonial dispensations. At length, after tarring out every worshiper with the tediousness of his deduction, he came to the New Testament dispensation and made about one quarter part of his inordinately long prayer really adapted to the occasion on which he was called to officiate. During a large part of the time occupied by this prayer, he had his hands as well as the hands of his fellow presbyters pressing on the head of the candidate to the great discomfort of all of them. I have heard it stated as a remarkable excellence in the late Dr. Nathaniel Emmons of Massachusetts that in all his public prayer he was so peculiarly appropriate that while he was richly various and judicious, every petition, from the first sentence to the last, was strictly adapted to the occasion on which he was called to preside. There is a singular beauty in this and a direct tendency to increase the interest and the edification of the exercise, while the obvious effect of the opposite course is to exhaust the patience and fatigue the attention before coming to that which really belongs to the occasion. Number 17. Another fault in public prayer, which I have often observed and regretted, is the apparent want of reverence with which it is frequently concluded. It is not easily intelligibly to describe this in many cases. The thing referred to is an air and manner, and especially a tone of voice, indicating not only a purpose and desire to close, but some degree of haze to be done, manifested by pronouncing the last sentence or two with more rapidity and a less solemn tone, with less fervor and apparent earnestness than the preceding. Nay, I have known some occupants of the pulpit to all appearance decisively pious, who on closing a solemn prayer of otherwise excellent character throughout, have not only uttered the last sentence in the hasty and irreverent manner just described, but they have been seen while pronouncing the last sentence, stretching forth their hands and grasping the psalm book, that they might be ready without the loss of a moment to give out the psalm or hymn that followed. There is something not a little revolting in all this, Surely he who leads in a solemn prayer ought to be at least as seriously and earnestly engaged as any other individual in the sanctuary. But what would he think if the whole assembly or any other considerable portion of them were observed to be engaged during the last sentence of his prayer in adjusting their dress, or in putting in their appropriate places all the fixtures around them? Surely such a sight would fill him with disgust and would call forth a pointed rebuke. All persons present the officiating minister ought to manifest a most exemplary 
sincerity and earnestness in uttering every sentence of his own devotions, and to the last word to exhibit an attention fixed, a solemnity undiminished and complete. 18. The last fault in public prayer that will be here mentioned is that rapidity and vehemence of utterance, which are sometimes affected as an expression of deep feeling and ardent importunity. This rapidity is oftentimes carried so far as to be inconsistent with that calm reverence which is essential in all addresses to the infinitely exalted object of prayer. Here nothing hasty, nothing rash, nothing which has not been considered and weighed ought ever to escape from the lips of him who lead others to the throne of grace. There is hardly anything more attractive and impressive in this exercise in the appearance of a sanctified intelligence as well as a warm heart dictating and accompanying every petition, when there is an opportunity given for him who leads, as well as for him who follows, to reflect well on what is uttered, to begin no sentence without forecasting its import and its conclusion, and thus to avoid that sudden embarrassment which is often the result of inconsiderate haste. How revolting to hear him who is a mouth, perhaps of hundreds, and addressing the High and Holy One, pouring out his petitions with such vehemence, such extreme rapidity, such a blast of voice, as to give those who are listening to him no opportunity to ponder in their hearts what he is saying and to unite in heart with him. He who gives himself up to this kind of headlong speed of manner will often fail in carrying along with him the intelligent concurrence of his fellow worshippers, and will be apt to stumble in his hasty progress for not having well considered what he is about to say. Words few, well-considered and well-ordered, are the inspired characteristics of a good prayer. In fact, in this exercise, the whole manner is important and worthy of being sacredly regarded. Here all unnecessary vociferations, all stern, ostentatious, disrespectful, dictatorial tones of voice, everything not in keeping with that modest, humble, filial spirit which becomes a suppliant conscious of deep unworthiness and pleading for mercy, ought to be carefully avoided, nay a right frame of mind will ever spontaneously lead to their avoidance. I once knew a young minister who in common conversation was remarkably gentle and deliberate, and in preaching rather below than above par in ardor and animation, but who, as soon as he commenced the exercise of prayer, became rapid, impetuous, and even boisterous, the consequence was that he hurried on at a rate which prevented many from keeping up with him, that he began his sentences without foreseeing how they were to end, that he stumbled and blundered and sometimes exciting the disgust rather than the devotion of the assembly. I am sensible that while I have given this formidable list of faults which frequently occur in public extemporary prayer, it would be an easy thing to present an equally extended array of faults which I have heard of or observed on the part of those who recited liturgies. The truth is, where good sense, good taste, and fervent piety are not in exercise, no public office of devotion can be really well performed. But it is no part of my plan to turn other denominations into ridicule, or to dwell on the faults of our neighbors. This would give me no pleasure, nor would it in the least degree mitigate my pain in contemplating the faults which exist among ourselves. I submit to the pain of mentioning the faults which sometimes occur in our own beloved church. If happily I may minister to their removal or the diminution of their number. God forbid that I should ever intrude into another Christian denomination for the sake of wounded feelings. I would much rather look at home 
and cast a beam out of our own eye, that we may see clearly to cast a mote out of our brother's eye. Frequent faults in public prayer. Samuel Miller. <laughs>